1: Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 87, The British Empire Part 1, Domestic Politics. This week, a big thank you goes out to Matt, Jan, Vittorio, and Victor for their support of the podcast by becoming members. Members get access to ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special member-only episodes. Head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more. Over the course of the podcast, one of the nations that will play a major role in our story is the British Empire. And as with every other nation, the actions of the British government during the early months and years of the war would have their roots in the actions and decisions of that government during the interwar period. This of course means that we're going to discuss some of those actions and decisions over the next several episodes. We will talk about British politics in the 1920s and 30s, the changing views on empire, how the British government and particularly the Royal Navy planned to deal with the rising threats it faced around the globe, and of course, British rearmament. Oh, and we will also of course discuss the state of Britain and the British military on the eve of the war. The goal of these episodes is to help everyone understand why some decisions were made and how some of those decisions influenced later events. It all starts with this episode, which will be focused on some of the domestic political developments during the interwar years. The economic and societal strain that the First World War put on British society was going to force changes when the war was over. In the aftermath of the conflict, the British Empire was larger than it had ever been, but years of war, during which it had bankrolled so much of the war effort of other nations, had its effect. These economic problems accelerated pre-existing trends that had been building up for years, and sometimes decades. These trends saw other nations begin to eat away at some areas that had been so critical to the British economy, and particularly industry, since the Industrial Revolution. Nations like the United States and Germany simply had easier access to more raw materials, and also had larger domestic populations that they could serve. These two nations, along with many others, also closed the technology gap that had existed during parts of the 19th century. After the end of the war, many industries also felt a lot of strain for a variety of reasons, such as the political chaos that followed the war in many foreign nations which reduced demands in many sectors, or a simple reduction in spending in many other industries that had been in great demand during the conflict. There was also new competition from foreign industries that had been built up over the previous years when British manufacturing had been so heavily focused on war material. On a more local level, there was also many challenges within the British economy, like the harsh class divides that saw many sectors of British society living in a deplorable state. In Britain at Bay, Alan Allport gives some context around this inequality. Allport would say, quote, Britain in the mid-1930s remained a country of staggering wanton inequality. Two-thirds of income earners brought in weekly wages of less than £2.10 shilling, an amount that was barely half the minimum considered necessary for a family of four to live decently. End quote. This inequality ran counter to other political developments, like the 1918 Education Acts, which tried to increase access to education among all classes of citizens. But the class divides would often prove to be too much when it came time for those newly educated individuals to continue on to higher education. The Wall Street Crash of 1929, and then what would be called in Britain the Great Slump, would then take all of those domestic economic challenges and amplify them. This was disastrous for many industries, and it would result in immense economic hardships for workers in some of those industries, and at its peak, unemployment would reach 23%. Even with all of these problems, there were still points of economic strength. For example, while wage increases would have periods of stagnation, there was no denying that the overall income trends for workers were much better than they had been before the First World War. And while Britain was certainly not the clear leader that it once had been in some areas, London was still the worldwide hub of international commerce. The amount of foreign assets held in Britain and the money that these assets brought in was a source of great wealth through their use as investments and and through insurance and other sort of shadow income. These investments were boosted by the decision to leave the gold standard, which allowed for a reduction in interest rates, which allowed for more investments to be made. Britain would also have the largest merchant fleet in the world, which was a source of tremendous wealth, as fees were charged on the transportation of goods. There were some limits on the benefits that could be gleaned from some of these areas, and they would also almost certainly come screeching to a halt in the case of another war. On the topic of war, the position of rearmament within British plans was a subject of massive debate, which we will cover in more detail in a later episode. But from an economic perspective, there was a pretty good understanding of what rearmament would mean. Not only would the government be spending a large amount of money, but this expenditure would cause wages to rise, which would then cause inflation, which might cause the economy to slow, like it had during previous inflation spikes. Foreign imports would also have to be increased for rearmament, which would then result in a balance of payments problem, which would never be as severe as what Germany was facing at this time, but it would still affect Britain's trade position. Eventually, the concerns about such problems would be overruled by the political reality, but there would always be some level of support in economic circles for less rearmament before the war to ensure that Britain entered the war in the best possible financial situation, even if it meant sacrificing immediate military readiness. But the Treasury would point out in April 1939 that, quote, if we were under the impression that we were as well able as in 1914 to conduct a long war, we were burying our heads in the sand. End quote. When it comes to politics outside of the economic sphere, a good place to start for interwar Britain would be to discuss who was actually able to vote. In February 1918, the Representation of the People Act was put into action, which greatly expanded the number of people who had the ability to vote. Under previous rules, there were certain property ownership requirements that had to be met, which kept millions of people off the voting rolls. Women were also not allowed to vote. The act would change this, though, and it allowed any man over the age of 21, along with any woman over the age of 30, to vote. This had the effect of immediately tripling the total size of the electorate, from 7.7 million to 21.4 million. It could have been expanded more, but at the time the age limit for women was put at 30, in no small part because otherwise the majority of the electorate would have been women, which would not have been acceptable for some individuals who believed that women should not have the right to vote in the first place. One MP, Richard Law, would say that giving women the right to vote, quote, brought nothing but degradation and dishonor to politics. He would then also stay. Quote, Historians of our decline will say that we were done the moment we gave women the right to vote. End quote. There are many more quotes that I could pull of people being very sexist and generally dismissing the intellectual capacity and decision-making ability of women, but I will spare you. Even with such vehement hatred to the very concept of women voting from some political leaders, full suffrage would quickly become something that trended towards inevitability, and full voting rights for women over the age of 21 would be given in 1928 with another representation of the People Act. These two acts brought so many new people into the electorate, and it did bring the possibility of kind of large changes to the British political landscape. In 1929, after the full expansion of voting rights, women were the majority in over 80% of parliamentary districts, and they didn't even have the right to vote a decade earlier. But then, no real large-scale changes happened. Over the course of the interwar period, the British voters would consistently vote not towards the radical edges of political discourse, but instead very closely to the center. Moderation was the name of the game. And while there were certainly more radical elements in British politics, there was a Communist Party, there was a British Union of Fascists. They found it difficult to gain real purchase in a British political landscape that, throughout any of the economic ups and downs, largely voted for stability. This caused the two largest parties, Labour and Conservative, to trend strongly towards the middle ground, devouring the grounds held by the Liberal Party, which suffered a decline. We will start with the Labour Party. The Labour Party would quickly grow in popularity after the First World War, in the same way that many socialist parties around Europe would, by gaining the support of workers' unions, and then supporting socialist policies. In Britain, the socialist rhetoric of the party was greatly tempered by attempts to gain more support from Liberal Party supporters that were leaving the party. This was done by supporting very moderate socialist reforms of the government and, for example, some greater government control but only for particular industries, greater strength for workers' unions, and more public assistance programs. On this platform, they would be able to form short-lived minority governments in both 1923 and 1929, and they would be in a position of powerful opposition during the 1920s. Until 1931, Ramsay MacDonald would lead the party, and he was a firm gradualist. This meant that instead of favoring radical change, Macdonald and most of the Labour Party favored a policy of working within the existing political structures, and trying to prove to other groups that they were capable of leading. After this was proven, they could then begin a long series of reformist measures that would eventually lead to their desired society, but slowly. If this policy was ever going to be successful, and that is something that can be debated, It would run into a massive problem when the Labor Party was in power when the stock market crash occurred in New York, and then the Great Slump began in Britain. The economic downturn that followed saw the government collapse, and the Labor Party would not be in power again until after the Second World War. What would instead follow was over a decade of conservative control of the government, with Macdonald also leaving the party to form the national government that would come to power in 1931. The Conservative Party would be in power for most of the interwar period, and their core constituency was businessmen in the upper and middle classes. But they would still be able to garner a good amount of support from other sectors of society as well. One of the important features of politics in Britain during this time, and particularly in the 1930s, was the power of the growing middle class. In the conservative party, they would be given a voice which pushed for policies that largely benefited them and which were also supported by far wealthier individuals. The party was also led by men who came from reasonably close to middle-class backgrounds, men like Stanley Baldwin, the son of an ironmonger, and Neville Chamberlain, the son of the owner of a screw-making company, among others. They were all still very wealthy, they grew up with privileges that their wealth provided to them, but they might still be considered in the middle class, although certainly in the upper cohorts. The middle class would be one of the groups that greatly benefited from changes in the economy after the Great Slump, and it would be their appetite for housing and luxury goods that would help to sustain the economic recovery of the mid-1930s. There was a real fear that the rise of the Labour Party and its socialist-based ideas would cause serious problems for the Conservative Party after the war. This was driven in some respects by the general anti-communist feelings that were present in many nations after the war. However, there were other details of their platform and how it appealed to the people. Here is Geraine Thomas from Brave New World, Imperial and Democratic Nation Building in Britain Between the Wars. Quote, not only were the conservatives ideologically hostile to Labour's policies of redistribution and nationalization, they were deeply nervous about two particular aspects of the political world after 1918: the extravagant public promises as they saw them which Labour candidates would make in order to secure a working majority in parliament and the voters' inability to resist them." End quote. These fears would prove to be mostly unwarranted, and the party would be able to firmly plant itself in the middle of the political compass and use that position to stay in a position of strength. This was particularly true during the 1930s, when Stanley Baldwin and other conservative leaders would oversee a lengthy period of conservative control. It began under the national government with MacDonald as the prime minister, but then transitioned into a conservative-dominated government as the years went by. In general, the conservative platform in Britain would always remain popular even as the European political landscape began to drastically shift during the 1930s. Many conservative party members would then be some of the leading forces for rearmament, although that's not something that they all agreed upon. The Labour and Conservative parties were the largest political parties in the nation for the entirety of the interwar period, with both of them tracking very closely to the center. There might have been space on the extreme edges on the left or right, but it never really happened. This was due to the fact that throughout this time, there was never really any questioning of the right of the government to rule, even among those groups who lost an election. None of the major parties ever openly or consistently questioned the results of elections, which was a critical component in many other nations, as more extreme political parties gained more and more support. Instead, those that did openly question the government were cast off as small groups that never really gained more than relatively small numbers of supporters. One of these that we will spend some time with today was the British Union of Fascists, or the BUF. The BUF was led by Oswald Mosley and was popularized by the Daily Mail and its owner, Lord Rothermere. The exposure of the party through the Daily Mail was critical, because it solved a major problem that these parties often had in Britain, which was public awareness. The BUF had a fascist political platform, which included anti-Semitism and a push for much greater British military strength. By 1934, it would have 50,000 members, and it would have a problem in continuing to grow beyond that number. The core issue that caused these problems w- was that the party during the mid-1930s tried to ramp up its acts of violence, and this would be met by protesters and the resistance of some of the left-wing parties, like the Labor Party or the Communist Party. In several cases, anytime time the BUF's violent rhetoric turned into violent action, overall support for the BUF would actually drop. The violence that that was caused by and surrounding the BUF would climax at the Battle of Cable Street, which would occur in October 1936. This was a confrontation that would take place in London's East End, when several thousand BUF members staged a march through the city, for which they were provided with police protection. They were met by tens of thousands, or up to 100,000, counter-protesters, who attempted and then succeeded in preventing the march from happening. But in this success, the counter-protesters would have a violent clash with the police, which would cause 175 injuries. The BUF canceled the march and dispersed, and in the aftermath, the membership of the party actually rose because it was generally seen as the victim of anti-fascist aggression. However, shortly after the Cable Street clash, the Public Order Act would be passed, which would be the first in a series of laws that would make it sort of, or were designed to make it, more and more difficult for the BUF to act as it once had. The Public Order Act would prevent public uniforms from being used by political parties, which was something that was always a feature of these fascist parties, not just in Britain, but but sort of all over the world. It also gave the police the ability to prohibit any march by any political group. While the Public Order Act restricted the BUF in some ways, it actually ended up increasing membership because it prevented many of the violent and paramilitary actions that the BUF had been staging over the years which had caused it to lose members. However, even with this forced change in party action, the party would begin to decline in 1937, and by 1939 it counted its membership at just 22,000. This number is somewhat impressive given the fact that even at this level of membership, it was never really able to make real political headway in any real fashion. When the war started, the BUF would officially support the British war effort, although this did not prevent the party from being shut down and outlawed on June 10, 1940 under the Emergency Powers Act.
2: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: One of the frequently discussed topics in British politics during the 1930s was the League of Nations. This was covered back in the early episodes of the podcast, but for the League of Nations to exist and to serve the purpose it was designed to serve, it had to have the support of the British government. Successive governments gave the support required, and for most of the 1920s and early 1930s, the League did not really require large commitments. As long as British representation showed up to the meetings, that was pretty much all they needed to do. But this did change in the mid-1930s as more active support was required. There was a large and very vocal group called the League of Nations Union that was active in Britain at this time, which fully supported British membership and leadership of the League of Nations, and the League's core values of collective security and peace. To try and show the support for this position, the League of Nations Union would announce the Peace Ballot, This was a questionnaire which was widely distributed around Britain, and it contained five questions that would, uh, theoretically, gauge the support of the British public for the League of Nations and Britain's continued push for peaceful outcomes in international disputes. The results were impressive, with massive support for the peace ballot and its questions. However, it was not what any public polling agency would consider a good and balanced set of questions. The most that could reasonably be gained from the ballot was that most Britons did support continued membership in the League of Nations, and they also supported the concept of collective security. It was also distributed over the years of 1934 and 1935, before the League had really meaningfully been tested with a large member committing any act of aggression, something that would happen with increasing frequency in the years that followed. Another important topic of conversation, especially during the 1930s, was British rearmament, and those conversations and arguments would not wait until the peace ballot or those events of the 1930s, and would instead begin several years earlier. Up until 1933, the overall structure of European politics was driven by the after-effects of the Versailles Treaty and the agreements made by its participants in the decade that followed, This manifested in agreements like the Locarno Pact, which saw France, Germany, Belgium, Italy, and the United Kingdom agree to not launch any acts of aggression. But by the early 1930s, concerns were growing about the state of the British military and what it might be asked to do in the years that followed. The result would be the Defense Requirements Committee, which was set up in late 1933 and would run for the next year. The goal of the committee was to plan out the next stage of British military planning and preparations, taking into account the increasing threats in Europe and in Asia, especially Germany and Japan, two nations that required very different approaches in any conflict. The committee was important because each threat and its relative ranking against the others would dictate how military spending was apportioned in the years that followed. Then in March 1935, a program of rearmament was published in an easily digestible form, more to boost support among the public than anything else. In political circles, there were concerns in the Labor Party that such rearmament would merely cause an escalation in tensions and then the start of another war, or those weapons might just be used by conservative governments against socialists, both domestically and abroad. We will discuss rearmament a lot more in future episodes. This brings us to the 1935 election. When an election was called in 1935, the national government had been leading the nation for almost four years. During that time, the nation had come out of the worst parts of the slump, unemployment had been greatly reduced, and the economy was doing quite well. This had been accomplished through some government actions, but just the general increase in economic fortunes around the world. The government had made a few key choices, like when it left the gold standard, but it was one of those rising tides, rise all boats type of situations. Working against these positives for the national government was the fact that the conservative party was split due to vehement disagreements between its members on the contents of the Government of India bill. Debates of this bill were in many ways similar to what had happened during discussions about the future of Ireland a generation before. A group of conservative MPs just adamantly refused to even consider a bill that would reform British control in India and which would result in greater independence for the Indian people. These were the same type of reforms that had already occurred in many of Britain's other imperial holdings and which had been formalized and expanded after the First World War. But India, many would claim, was different, with the claim being that if India was allowed self-government, chaos and violence would follow. The general belief that Indians were fundamentally incapable of effective self-government was a belief heavily based on the kind of Eurocentric elitism that had driven the entire course of European colonialism. Words would be used like imperial duty to describe why such reforms were impossible. Winston Churchill was one of these MPs, and he was a very vocal member of this group, although I'm not sure he was capable of not being vocal on anything. I only really mention Churchill here due to later events, and due to the fact that his absolute refusal to budge on the India issue would be the cause of his political kind of impotence in the years that followed. But anyway, back to the election of 1935. The results of the election are... An interesting example of how distant British politics were from many other nations on the continent. By the mid-1930s, many nations had turned to more totalitarian governments, be they fascist, communist, military dictatorships. In France, while such governments had not come to power, there was a sense of political instability as governments rose and fell and the Popular Front gained more and more support. It would eventually lead a government. But in Britain in 1935, the people would vote decisively for more of the same. The national government would win 51.8% of the vote, a fair bit off of its 67% performance from 1931, but it still gave the party an absolute majority. And they were not just supported by the rich and the middle classes, but also by the working class who had just greatly benefited from the economic recovery of the previous years. Critically to our story, this would be the last general election in Britain until after the Second World War, a full decade in the future. Stanley Baldwin would be the first leader of this new government, but then he would be replaced by a man we have discussed quite a bit in recent months, Neville Chamberlain. He would remain in office from 1937 until May 1940. I think that's where we will leave British politics for right now. In next episode, we will deal with one of Britain's greatest military problems during the interwar period, how to handle the growing strength and antagonism of Japan. Decisions would have to be made about how that was going to be approached before other decisions about rearmament could be made in the late 1930s.